You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Um, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians. There is a cool back in the air. The long weekend is behind us. School's back in session. Ministries are starting up again, and we are jumping back uh, into the book of Colossians. So uh, turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible on you, there should be one in a pew near you. Grab that. We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Um, I, I have nothing to say. I come with no wisdom, no authority. God's word is our authority. And so uh, my goal is to not say anything other than what the Lord has already said uh, as we work through um, this glorious book together. Uh, If you're new with us, um, we did the first two chapters um, of Colossians uh, last spring. And so you can uh, can go to the website and catch up. They're only about 12 sermons behind, so you can do that in one day. Um, It's only 12 hours worth. Um, but you don't have to. That's okay. Uh, they're there if you want to check them out. Um, but we're going to pick up in chapter 3. Um, and, and you'll notice that, that chapter 3, verse 1, is, is this pivotal shift in the flow uh, of the book of Colossians. Um, this is very characteristic of, of Paul's writings. This is kind of one of his trademarks. Um, he begins with the indicative and then moves to the imperative. Now, some of you haven't been in high school grammar for a while, and that's okay. Um, indicative is a statement of truth. It indicates this is the facts. Imperative, then, it is imperative that you obey. It is, it's telling us what to, what to do. Where do we go from here? And so this is clearly not, certainly not a hard line. There's plenty of overlap going both ways. Um, But Paul does this in a number of his letters. He begins the book laying out this is what is true. These are the facts of the gospel, uh, of its truth, of who Christ is and who you are. Uh, And then he, he switches to, now what do we do with that? How do we live that out? Where do we go with these Truths, And so over the next few months, we'll be getting more um, practical. What, is, what does the gospel mean in our marriages? What does it mean in our parenting? What does it mean in our workplace and, um, and, and in our lives? And so um, it's immensely practical. Uh, I remember um, as a youth pastor riding in a, a vehicle with a couple other youth pastors and hearing them laugh and joke about the, a class they had taken at the college they had gone to. And uh, they put it right up alongside of, of jumbo shrimp and old news and uh, uh, seriously funny. This is just this great oxymoron. Can you believe it? They had a class called Practical Theology. Ha! How, how could theology ever be practical? And, and sadly, um, I think a lot of people think that way. But the Bible just constantly makes this link. This is what's true. Now here's how it affects our lives. Here we live this out practically. In fact, this... This is a very significant dynamic. Um, Paul starts very intentionally with the indicative before he moves to the imperative. We have to know the gospel and then we can apply it. It's of primary significance what Christ has done, the truth of the gospel, the facts about who he is. And it's only out of that truth 
then that the transformed life flows. We're not saved because we live holy lives. We live holy lives because we're saved. That's a a significant distinction. That really gets right to the heart of the gospel. What comes first, our acts or God's acts? And so chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 in Colossians um, sit right at this hinge in the middle of the book of Colossians uh, as Paul kind of shifts his primary focus from the, the truths about the gospel to now what do they mean to us today. And so as we enter back into Colossians, I want to start just kind of giving us a flyover recap of what he has said so far. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church in a city called Colossae. He's never been there. Um, it's down the road from Ephesus where he had spent a lot of time teaching. And it seems that uh, Epaphras had heard the gospel from Paul and then headed out to Colossae and, and shared the gospel there. And the church was born and now Epaphras has come to Paul and giving him a report. Here's what's going on. And, and one of the things that, that, that he tells him is that there's these false teachers who are harassing the church there, and they're, they're in turmoil. They're getting divided by some, some wrong teaching. And so Paul's kind of correcting that, and we see that play out through the book. Um, he begins with this greeting and, and this prayer for them, which is, which is all very instructive, but we can't get into the details right now. Um, verse Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15, um, he really begins to lay the foundation. This is who Jesus is. He is God himself. He is the creator of all things. He's the ruler of all things. Um, He is the head of the church, the firstborn of creation. Uh, Verse 18, he is preeminent over all. Verse 20, um, he's reconciling the world to himself by his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. 21 to 23 then. Um, so you who were sinners can then be reconciled, can be made right with God. 24 to 29, he talks about how this, this good news of the gospel, it wasn't fully revealed. It was kind of veiled in ages past, but now with the coming of Jesus, it's clear. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 3, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, so don't be deluded. Don't be led astray. Don't be distracted. Don't follow after, verse 8, these worldly philosophies and human traditions, the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. Verse 9, because again, it's all about Jesus. 10 to 12 explains uh, the, the true gospel of God. Um, the, sorry, the true people of God are, are those who are set apart, um, not as the Jews were, not by a physical sign, a physical mark of circumcision, the cutting off of the male foreskin. No, they're set apart by God, by a spiritual mark, the the cutting off of the sinful nature. Verses 13 to 15, that's you. You were dead in your sin, but God made you alive together in Christ by forgiving your sins, paying the the penalty for sin on the cross. So then 16 and 17, he says, You can't get to God any other way. You can't get to God by by legalism, by adding laws and trying to do all the right things. And so don't worry about the the food laws and the drink laws and these kind of Jewish traditions. Those are are done now. Those are past tense. They were always only ever pointing toward Christ. And now Christ is here. Verse 18, he says you can't get to God by asceticism, by being harsh to the body, beating up on yourself, working hard, trying to make these sacrifices to God. And you can't get to God by mysticism, seeking after visions and dreams and these fancy uh, spiritual experiences 
No, verse 19, hold fast to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's in knowing the truth about him that the church grows and is strengthened and made healthy. 20 to 23, all these human strategies are meaningless. They're useless. They, they look good. They look like good religion on the outside, but they're of no value of doing away with the flesh. And that brings us then to chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Our passage this morning, let me read it for us. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that it reveals Christ to us. Lord, open our eyes this morning to see your truth Lord, I pray that you would be uh, with me as I speak, that my words would be true to your word. God, that if there is anything um, that I have prepared, anything that comes into my mind that is not of you, God, that those words would just be dismissed, that they would not be heard, but God, that your word would go forth. And Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you help us today to be uh, transformed more and more into the image of Christ uh, by the work of your spirit through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing Paul says here, um, all this theology from chapter, chapters 1 and 2 um, transitions into practice, uh, is verses 1 and 2, live that new life. This is what the new life is about, so live it. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again just so we kind of have laser focus. We know what we're talking about. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So chapter 2 shows the, the glorious and great power and magnificence of who Jesus is. And then how foolish and, and futile all of our, our human efforts are. And he says, if you've been raised with Christ, stick with that. That's good. Go down that road. Keep your focus there. Again, don't be distracted. Don't be pulled aside by these, by these false teachers. Stick with Jesus. Now, there's a lot to be assumed in that sentence, if you have been raised with Christ. Firstly, in order to be raised with Christ, you have to have been dead. We, we were born, every one of us, dead. Um, that's where we start, all of us. This is pointing back to chapter 2, verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's where we start, spiritually dead. Sure, we're, we're, we're breathing and eating and drinking and talking, but, but spiritually we have, we have no life. We are dead to God. We don't love Him. We don't desire Him. We don't honor Him. We have no life in us that would respond to His, His majesty and glory. And, and so... That dead life is in itself sinful. And as you can imagine, then it quickly produces sinful living, sinful acts. It produces, because we, we're dead to God, we trespass against his law. 
And those who are dead in their sin are destined for an eternity in hell. It's God's judgment, God's righteous, right wrath against those who reject him. Let's look back again at 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, I want you to notice the inescapable language used here. What happened to you when you were dead? You were dead, but, but you, then you changed. You were dead, but you had a, a change of heart. You were, you were dead, but you cleaned yourself up. You made things right. No, no, it doesn't say any of that. You were dead, but you turned yourself around. No, no, it says nothing about what you did. You were dead, but God did something. You were lifeless, unresponsive. You had no ability to do what was right, to honor the Lord. You had no spiritual life. And in that moment, God made you alive together with Christ. All of a sudden, by the work of God in your heart, you came to spiritual life. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 describes it this way. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beautiful. Our hearts were darkness. They were empty. They were like the void before creation. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. All of a sudden, there was spiritual life when there previously had only been death. There was spiritual blindness was made to see. And the glory of God is evident in the face of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, everything's changed. Paul is writing this to those who have had that experience. If then, you have been raised with Christ. And there's this contrast here to those who are stuck in this false, worldly, religious efforts. That's the the false teachers that he's been talking about. And so he's not saying, if then you have lived a good moral life, if then you've kept the law. He's not saying, uh, if then you're a a good moral person, or or if then you are super spiritual and have seen visions and, and miracles. No. All of those things, verse 23, says have an appearance of wisdom. They look like the right thing, but there are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They look good from the outside, but, but inside, if you're still dead in your sin, it's irrelevant. What matters is, have you been brought from death to life? Have you been raised with Christ? Do you have this new life in you? So before we go any further talking about living that new life, we just have to stop and ask, do you have that new life? Have you been raised with Christ? The distinction that Paul's been making is one that has deceived so many. It's between trust in ourselves and trust in Christ. It's that simple. I've asked this question numerous times, but it it really is right at the heart of it. If you were to die today and stand before the Lord in his judgment and for sake of argument, let's say Satan is standing there and he says, I saw John, I saw Josh, I saw Steve. He did this, he did this, he did this. He's right. 
It's inescapable. I, I have sinned over and over and over again against the Lord. And God were to look at you and say, why should I let you into my heaven? How do you answer? How do you respond? Go ahead, take a second. What are you going to say? Now listen carefully. Because we are so prone to answer that question. Maybe, maybe you just did. Well, I'm a pretty good person. Right, I, I, I'm not perfect, but, but I did my best. Look at all the things that I have done. Lord, I went to church and I gave in the offering and I serve in the, the Connect team and I, I did all these things. And then we point to all the things we've, we've not done, right? I don't get drunk and I didn't swear, not, not very much. And, and uh, you know, I, I didn't go to bad movies. But listen, any answer that begins with the word I is a failure, is a total failure, hopeless. If you're trusting in anything in you, your trust in heaven is in vain. Any answer that begins with I is hopeless. All that you have done is sin. You have broken God's law. You've rebelled against his perfect holiness. You deserve hell. There's one answer, one acceptable response before the Lord. Only one hope that we have of heaven. And that is, that is not to say anything about me, but to look only to Jesus. Why should I let you into heaven? Not, not by anything I have done, only because of what Christ has done. That's what the new life looks like. It's trusting in Jesus, holding fast to, to him as our only hope. It's humbling, it's crushing, but it is beautifully freeing to just let go, to just admit, yeah, I, I am a mess. Satan's right about me. I am a wretched sinner who deserves hell. <sighs> Got that out. At least it's on the table. But look what Jesus did. He died in my place. He took the wrath that I deserve. I absolutely deserve hell and Jesus paid it in full. If that's not you this morning, this is your invitation. If you've been struggling on your own to try to impress God and try to work your way up, I gotta clean myself up, I gotta fix myself. God, look at me, look at all these things that I do. Let it go, drop it. Lay it down. Admit to the Lord that you are guilty and deserve his wrath and nothing more. And then look to Jesus. Look to what God himself has done to make a way that we could come to him. Now, if that is you, if you are trusting in Jesus, in him and him alone, listen, John 5.1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you're trusting in him, that, that's because you've been given new life. God has done a, a, a radical work at the, at the core of who you are. He spoke light into the darkness. Now let's get back to Colossians 3.1. Live that new life. Right? Live in it. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. 
The question is, where do we, where do we go from here? What does it mean to, to live in this new life then? And it's to, to set our minds on things above rather than earthly things. And frankly, it's so easy for us, I think, to, to trust in Christ for our salvation and still be plagued by these feelings of not being good enough. Needing to, to do more. I need to, I need to pay God back for this gift that he's given me. So we go back to what Paul calls these worldly ways of thinking. We go back to working. Back to trying to earn his favor. Back to trying to impress him by our goodness. Paul says, no, live in the new life. Live in the resurrection. We take our eyes off of Jesus and, and we start putting them back on ourselves, back on our own human strategies. Remember the end of chapter 2, Paul just finished telling us that that self-made religion, those human efforts or willpower on their own, there, there are no value of stopping the flesh. It doesn't work. We are not transformed. We don't live out this new life in Christ by, by returning then to our own human effort and strength. No, if we're raised with Christ... We're going to be living in that new life, this new reality, this new definition of, of who we are. And seeking, setting our minds on the things above, on, on heavenly things. It's about what you think about, what you focus on, and what specifically is to be the focus of our seeking. What is there in the heavenly places? Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That, that, that's a position of victory over sin, over death. He has overcome this world. He has finished his great work of salvation and he is seated at the right hand of God. We're told to seek the things above. The, the word seek there is, is in the, the present active tense. And so the, the Greek there has this idea of, a, of the continual ongoing seeking. Keep on always seeking the things that are above. Set your hope, set your, set your mind on him, set your heart on him. Kind of like digging a, a hole um, in the beach down by the water. You ever done that? You can spend all day just pushing sand up, right? Try to keep the sand out. And you can be totally preoccupied just trying to keep the hole from filling in. It, it will ultimately be unfruitful. You won't win. What you need is something to, to fill that hole, right? You can spend a lifetime trying to stop sin. I gotta stop this, I gotta stop that, I gotta make sure, don't do that, don't think about that. I'm trying to keep sin out, but ultimately what we need is to fill the hole. What we need is Christ. We need to set our eyes on Him, take our eyes off of these worldly things and focus them on Christ. Set your heart on Him. The, the battle against sin is a battle of desires. Do I desire sin? And believe that it offers satisfaction and joy? Or do I desire Jesus and believe that he offers more? That in him is true joy, true satisfaction. And one of the realities of the human nature is that we, we just tend to run towards what we fix our eyes on. There's a, a phenomenon that um, became known in World War II as target fixation. Um, they, they actually had pilots who got so fixated on their target, they're looking at the, the target that they need to, to strafe with their fighter jet or to drop bombs on, and in the moment of panic, they're so fixated on it, they would crash right into it. Right? You've seen this at the park. Hey, honey, watch out for that bar. And he's looking at the bar and runs right into it, right? 
We're so fixated on our problem that we end up running right there. Paul says, no, no, no. Take your eyes off of all of the mess and the problem and the dirt. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Go after him. Spend time in the word. Read your Bible. Make it, make it a daily habit to start your day setting your mind on him. And as you read his word, um, you will learn to see him on every page. Come to church. We gather together to, to sing about Christ, to hear Christ preach, to, 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 to encourage one another in him. Don't, don't let that be kind of an optional extra every now and then. We do, the, we do the church thing. It's nice. It's fun. No, this is part of my life. I need this. I need to have my, my eyes fixed on Christ again. Rain or shine, this is what we do. Spend time with other believers. Hebrews 10, 23, 25 says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. What's that? It's, it's Jesus. Let's hold fast to the, the confession of the hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That, that's a definition of what our small groups are about. Encouraging one another. Spurring one another on to hold fast to Christ. So live that new life. Fix your eyes on him. Fix your heart on him. And then the end of chapter 2, and, uh, and, or sorry, verse 2 and, and verse 3. Um, first, we, we live the new life. And, and then secondly, he says, leave the dead life. Look at uh, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he starts with the fact that, that we've been raised with Christ. So, so you have this new life in him. Fix your eyes on him. But then he looks at the, the other side of the coin. Don't fix your eyes on the earthly things. Don't, don't get so fixated there because you died to those things. When you were given new life in Christ... That old worldly self, that, that dead self, he died. He's gone. Uh, Paul talks about this dynamic um, extensively over in Romans 6. Go ahead and turn to Romans 6, if you would. Just a, a handful of books over to the left. Uh, Romans chapter 6. I'll give you a minute to, to flip over there. We're going to have a couple of baptisms next week. And, and here Paul's talking about the, the symbolism of, of baptism and, and all that it means. Romans 6, let me start in uh, verse 1. He's, he's been saying through Romans 5 that just the abundance of God's grace and how as we sin all the more, sin, our grace just rises up to meet the challenge and our grace and God's grace covers our sin. And then verse 6 he asks, well, what shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Now listen to his answer as to why. How can we who died still live, sorry, died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if, you've been, if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, here it is, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if you've died with Christ, we believe that we will live with, also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, verse 11, he wraps this up. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this symbol of our salvation of baptism, going down into the water saying that old me who I used to be, he's dead. He was crucified with Christ. That me that used to live for sin and and selfishness, he's gone now. He deserved death and that penalty was paid by Christ on the cross. And then coming up out of the waters, the symbolic of the the new life, the resurrection we have in Christ, washed clean, started new. Verse 6 expounds on what it means that this old self is now dead. And it ultimately means we're no longer slaves to sin. You think about owning a slave, um, that slave does what you tell him to. He belongs to you. He's yours. You have authority over him. You own him. You say, jump, he jumps. But if that slave dies, that's the end of that. You can't expect him to obey anymore. He's dead. You've lost your reach. You have no more control over him. He's gone. So Paul is saying our, our relationship was to sin. We are born as slaves to sin. In Adam, corrupt in our hearts, we are slaves to our own sinful desires. But now, now that sinful self in Christ has been been crucified. And you have this new life, and so you're no longer a slave to sin. You're you're dead to sin. So live like it. Live like it. Leave that old, dead self behind. So verse 11, when he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, um, it's not like pretend that it's true. Um, I I like the word reckon better. I think that's the old KJV word for it Um, because that assumes that it is true and you just need to get that into our thick heads, right? Consider it true because it is true because you are dead to sin. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin. You're dead to the, the power of sin. It no longer rules you. It no longer has ownership over you. Now it still shouts its commands, Right? Anyone who's been a Christian for more than about 30 seconds realizes, oh, sin is still there. It's still barking at me, telling me what to do. And, and sometimes, to my own disappointment and frustration, I still obey it. As if I was a slave. I, go, I, I willingly go back into that place. I don't have to now. I've been set free in Christ, and yet I hear that command, and, and I still obey. So Paul encourages the believers, live the new life And leave that dead life behind. But back at Colossians 3, down in in verse 5 there. He begins to unpack a little more of of the earthly things that we have died to. Read 5 down to verse 9. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires and covetousness which is idolatry. 
On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So you can see this battle that has begun. You were made alive in Christ. You, you've set your mind on him and, and you're dead to sin. So, so stop doing those things. And, and notice, though the transforming power is not in our willpower alone, right? Primary call here is to set our minds on things above. That's first and foremost. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's no effort involved. Right? That doesn't mean that you just look to Jesus and, and everything just kind of magically changes overnight. No, you look to Christ, you set your mind on him first and foremost, and yet there's still language here of effort and work. Verse 5 says, put to death what is earthly. So there's layers here. You've died, now put those actions to death. Verse 8 says, put them all away. And so much as it's important to realize that the human will is, and, and determination is not enough on its own. And so we, we look to Christ, we set our mind on him, we trust in him. We don't just trust in Christ and sit back and, and expect our sin to magically evaporate. We fix our eyes on him. We trust him to be at work in us and then we go to work. Putting sin to death rooting it out, leaving behind those old sinful tendencies and habits that still plague us. Ephesians 5, 8 puts it this way. It says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Leave the darkness behind. Notice in all these passages we've read, um, the, the, the core issue is our identity. Who are we? What are we on the inside? And I think we so often get this backwards. We feel like we are sinners at our core. That's who I am. Following Christ, oh, I, I'm trying to. I'd love to. Walking in holiness, I'm, I'm working toward that. Giving up the things of this world, saying no to sin. That, that feels like it's unnatural to us. When we sin, we feel like we've, we've gone back to where we belong. We've gone back to what's natural. And at times, it's easy even to feel like an imposter as a Christian. I call myself a Christian, but look at my life. There I go, losing my temper one more time. There I go, looking at things on the internet that I shouldn't be, lying to try to impress the people around me. Whatever it is, we walk in, in the darkness. And I feel like that's my true identity. Like a follower of Christ is a, is a sham. Now, there is a point you need to stop and ask some hard questions, right? It is possible to be living a lie. If you continue in sin without conviction, without repentance, without change over time, if in the depths of your heart you stop and, and think about it, you have to admit, no, I love sin and I hate the God who condemns it. Then yes, sinner Sounds like that is your core identity. That's who you are. It would be good for you just to, to face up to that, to stop pretending and, and hiding. Because say or do what you will on the outside, if you don't have that new life in Christ, it's irrelevant. But if you love the Lord, and yes, you 
you sin, but you feel the, the weight of guilt and the, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it drives you to your knees before the Lord. You come in repentance, crying out for forgiveness. And, and over time, you see the Holy Spirit at work in you. And, and you're not the person now that you were two years ago. And you need to realize, sinner is just not who you are anymore. There's a popular analogy that's used often today in preaching, and I think it's really unhelpful. I think it's wrong. Um, you'll hear preachers talk about how the, the Christian has these kind of two dueling natures inside of himself. The old and the new, the good and the bad, right? And, and so these two natures are like two dogs in a fight. And, and if you starve one dog and feed the other, that dog's going to win the fight. And so we need to starve one and, and feed the other. And, and I see what they're getting at. It's kind of it's helpful maybe in some practical ways, but, but at its root, it's, it's wrong. It's not true of who we are. You don't have a sinful nature, Christian. You died. That you was, was crucified with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is your identity. That is who you are if you have been raised with Christ. The old you is gone and a new you has come. Now, we still have the battle of the flesh. We still have those fleshly desires. We still have those old habits, those old ways of thinking and, and living that, that linger. I'm not saying there's not a battle. Those old tendencies, those old tastes and desires continue to call, but that's not your nature. That's not who you are. Maybe a, a better analogy would be uh, a truck that, that used to run on diesel or, or maybe crude oil would be a better analogy. And, and you've had a full engine swap. The old crude oil has all been washed out, steam clean, sparkly, shiny, and you've been given this, this premium, high-performance gasoline engine. That's the new you. So, so stop putting crude oil in your tank. It doesn't work. That's not who you are. That's not what you're made for. Right? The, you have been transformed. So put those things away. Be diligent. I know every time you pull into the gas station, you, 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 you pull into the same old lane and you go back to the same old pump, but, but you have a new engine now. You've got to change those habits. Be suspicious of your longings and desires. Because you've died with Christ. You have this new life. So, so live in that new life. Leave the dead life. And then finally, um, Paul calls us to look to the hidden life. Look at verses three and four. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is our confidence. Oh, this is our hope. Paul shows it from two different angles. Um, he points us to look at the, the hidden life, and verse 3 is about our present hope, and then verse 4 is about our future hope. So let's start first in, in verse 3, this hidden life as our present hope. So this is point 3a. Uh, Not only am I made new, that old sinful self is dead, crucified with Christ. There's a new me, new life in Christ. 
But my new life is hidden with Christ in God. Um, That idea of of hidden um, means it's protected. It's guarded. It's kept safe. Right? They didn't have banks in the old days. You, you wonder about Jesus' parable about the, the treasure hidden in the field, and you wonder, why did the guy put the treasure in the field? Well, because that was safekeeping. That's what you did. You went and hid it somewhere where no one would find it, and it was safe there. That's what Paul is saying. Your new life is hidden. It is kept safe, guarded, protected with Christ. John 10, 28. To 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one. Now, some people want to play word games with this verse and try to get fancy. And while, you know, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, but you could walk off. Well, if Satan were so to deceive someone that they walked off, has he not snatched them? No, I I think Jesus is pretty clear. He begins this sentence saying, pretty point blank, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Boom. Then he, we could could go elsewhere. Uh, Jude 24 says, Now to him, now to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling, And present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So he is able. He's able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from wandering, and to bring you fully into glory, to present you before God the Father with great joy. So no one will snatch you from his hand, and he is able to keep you in his hand. And so Jesus says with confidence, John 6, 39 to 40, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Not one person who is given to Jesus by the Father will be lost. Not one person for whom Christ has died will suffer in hell for eternity. Not one. If you have this new life, if by the grace of God through faith you have life in Jesus, your life is eternal life and it is hidden with God, with Christ in God. And he will see it through. He will lead you. He will sanctify you. He will keep you to the end. No one will be able to take you from the Father's hand and even our own sinfulness he will overcome will not be enough to to thwart God's plan to undo his saving work. This radical, glorious transformation from death to life doesn't just flip back and forth. The Colossians were surrounded by these false teachers who were promoting legalism and asceticism and and mysticism. They were in danger of feeling like like they didn't match up, like they were second-class Christians, maybe not even Christians because they didn't have all these fancy extras. Paul's saying, no, no, your life, your true life is hidden with Christ in God. That's our present hope. And then he points us to this future hope. If your life is hidden with Christ in God, then you can be confident here and now that he will keep you. And then look at verse 
For when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We talked about this last week. This life is hard. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if you've caught that along the way. There is suffering and trials and and hardship and darkness here. The Christian life is hard. It adds suffering and persecution and trials. We can be tempted to despair, to wonder, is it worth it? Where's this all going? What am I doing on this path? That's part of the hidden life. Your life, your, your joy, your vibrancy, the, the core of who you are, it's hidden. It's hidden. So much of the, the glory of the Christian life is, is not outwardly visible. It's not presently apparent, but that day is coming. Oh, that day is coming. When Christ, who is your life, will appear, will be revealed, will come again, returning in all of his glory. And when he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's a glorious promise. That's good news. Look to that hidden life, knowing that that he's going to keep me safe. He's going to keep me in his hand. And he's going to keep me until that glorious day of revelation. That future hope, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And and so in that, we can endure. We can persevere through through any trial, through any hardship, through any darkness. We can withstand the storm, looking to that hidden life, knowing the, the fullness of my life, my true life. This isn't it. It's not here. It's eternal life. It's, it's yet to come. Philippians 3, 20 down to 4, 1. Listen to what Paul says. But our citizenship, of course, citizenship was a big deal in their days, right? Like Roman citizenship was significant privileges and notoriety. That was not a small thing. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Don't be shaken. Don't be worried. With confident hope we can stand because because my life is hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ returns, that's when my life really starts. That's when I expect this to get good. Right? This messed up, broken world, sin-stained, suffering-soaked This isn't my life. I don't expect to find fulfillment here. I don't expect to find the fullness of joy and hope here. Not in its fullness. I'm not surprised. I'm not crushed when life is hard. I'm not wrecked when when governments are scary and viruses come threatening. Yeah, this is the world. This is it. But my life is still coming. That's what I'm focused on. My eyes are fixed on what is above. Securely hidden in Christ, awaiting that glorious day of his appearing. Um, Josh, why don't you come prepare to lead us? Um, We're going to close this morning uh, in communion together. Uh, How can we not? Baptism is is kind of that one-time statement of, of, I have been crucified with Christ and now I have this new life. Communion is this ongoing remembrance. Often celebrating together, remembering together 
that, that Christ is my life. That, that all I have is, is Him. And it's only because of His death that I have life. And like my physical life is sustained day after day by the nourishment of, of food and drink, my spiritual life is nourished consistently by Christ. He's the source. He's my hope. So um, in just a moment, Josh is going to play. We're just going to have some quiet time of reflection. Um, let me say this. Um, if you don't have this new life, if your life is defined by a love for sin and a rebellion against God, um, just take this moment to think quietly about that. Consider what the Lord has offered in Christ. Give up on your efforts to try to please him as a, as a taskmaster and see the gift of Christ and, and forgiveness that's there. Um, but if you're not a follower of Christ, we just ask you would, that you let this pass by. Um, this isn't for you. That's okay. Um, just watch and consider. Those of you who are followers of Christ, we're called to examine ourselves. Am I living in the new life? Am I leaving that dead life behind? Maybe you need some repenting you need to do before you stand and say, Jesus is my life. Maybe you can do that between you and the Lord right now. Maybe there's reconciliation that needs to happen. My sin has caused a rift between me and another believer. You know, you'd be better to, to wait to go and reconcile with them as soon as you can and then come back and celebrate communion together um, with integrity. My life, not perfectly, but in repentance, is seeking after the Lord. My eyes are fixed on Him.